Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. I came across two quotes this week, and one is we were preparing for our Good Friday service, dealing with the cross from Brian Zond, who writes, before the cross is anything else, it is a catastrophe. It is the murder of pure life and blameless love. The cross is a catastrophe. It is the pure and innocent son of God, the only truly innocent, pure life ever lived, murdered. And so there's a catastrophic nature to the cross. After reading that, I came across another quote by J.R.R. Tolkien, who's one of my favorite authors. And he called the resurrection a catastrophe. The you prefix meaning good, a good catastrophe. And he writes to his son, Christopher, in a letter, a catastrophe is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy that brings tears. Your whole nature chained in a material cause and effect, the chain of death feels the sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint has suddenly snapped back. And there is this reversal of that chain of cause and effect of life leading to death and all that that represents. Tolkien in his actual novel, The Lord of the Rings, gives a explanation of the resurrection in a conversation with Samwise uh, Gamgee, where he says, everything sad is coming untrue. That is the catastrophe. that this, as Tolkien described, this cosmic chain of cause and effect, the chain of death, the way that things move into death, into destruction, into futility, all of the sadness, the sadness that we all experience in many ways is coming untrue. That is the resurrection of Jesus. It is this reversal of all of the catastrophes. And in this one event, what we are shown is a foretaste or a picture of what is going to happen cosmically as all of these these catastrophes and all of this sadness are ultimately reversed to come untrue. And this is what we celebrate. This is what we celebrate this morning, that the sad things will not have the last word. I was talking with my four-year-old son, Jackson, this week, and I was actually brushing his teeth. I don't know if you've ever brushed the teeth of a four-year-old, but that is a difficult feat. But as I was looking at his teeth, I said, Jackson, you have my teeth. To which he looked at me, cocked his head to the side and said, daddy, you have your teeth and I have my teeth. That made no sense to him. And uh, there is a reality to that of how children see things very logically, very concretely. And 
Obviously, I and you and my wife, Jill, understood what I was saying about genetics and all of these things that, again, he did not see. There's a way in which the conversation that we find between Nicodemus and Jesus and many of the conversations that we find throughout the scriptures when Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and with these representatives of this kind of Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, where it's kind of like that conversation with my son, where he will say something and they will take it very literally and it won't make sense. And yet Jesus is is explaining something that's far more comprehensive, but even the disciples, right? Even his closest followers admit, and we see these notes as we look through the gospel of John, where they will say, hey, we didn't understand what he was saying. We didn't understand what was taking place or what all of this meant until after Jesus died and rose from the dead. And after that took place, after his death, after his resurrection, suddenly these things began making sense. And this is very much true when it comes to an understanding of the kingdom of God. Now, when we looked at Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus last week, and again, Nicodemus is a member of the Pharisees, the kind of ultra-religious group And he's also part of the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court in Jerusalem that oversaw all of uh, Israel. And he's a wealthy man, as we see. He, in this conversation with Jesus, uh, comes and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. And he's kind of having this politic uh, conversation. And it's like, hey, we recognize you're a good teacher. We recognize even that God's kind of involved in what you're saying. And Jesus really dramatically and oddly, have you ever been in a conversation with someone and all of a sudden it just like goes in another direction? You're like, I don't know what happened there. I was here and you were there. Well, that's kind of what we see taking place where Jesus replies, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Later in verse five, Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there is something that's taking place here that's important for us to see because Jesus' main message, when you look all through the gospels, is about the kingdom of God that he has come and that he is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is coming with him and all of this. And if you were in first century Jerusalem and you heard the kingdom of God was coming and that someone claimed to be bringing the kingdom of God, you would have assumed that what they meant was they were going, you were going to be part of overthrowing Uh, Rome, that there was going to be kind of this militarization that would finally bring you freedom from all of this oppression that you are under. And yet what Jesus is actually talking about, about the kingdom of God, is something that's much larger. And it's something that is used interchangeably with the words eternal life. And we see this when the rich young ruler comes to ask Jesus how he can have eternal life. And Jesus tells him, sell whatever you know you have, give it to the poor. He responds to him. So the, the question was, how do I have eternal life? And the response 
after he won't do what Jesus says is um, how hard it is for the rich to enter the what? The kingdom of God. And so this desire for eternal life, Jesus converts to this conversation about entering the kingdom of God. And this is something, again, that we see through the gospels. And this is definitely what is taking place in John's gospel. So Jesus has just been talking about what with Nicodemus? How you can enter the kingdom of God. And that conversation about how you can enter the kingdom of God turns into a conversation or or this section that's going to deal with eternal life. Patrick Schreiner writes, the key term John uses to unfold the kingdom is life and its synonym, eternal life. The kingdom is already here because Jesus has inaugurated it, but it will be fully consummated in the future. The same is true in John of life and or eternal life. So for John, life and eternal life are always to clarify what it means to live in the kingdom. And so we we consider this as we're moving into this section between this conversation about God's kingdom and, and to eternal life. So as we consider this, we're going to look at what this kingdom is and what Jesus is explaining and ultimately what he will demonstrate that the kingdom of God actually is. First, we're going to see that it is a kingdom of life. And in verse 13, we read, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So twice, Jesus is referred to as the son of who? Man. Now, when we think about Jesus, if you are kind of in the church world, or you think of Jesus as the son of who? God. And we're going to see that is a term that's used, but there's specific terminology of the son of man. And if you were a Jew in this day and age and you heard the son of man title, you would think of Daniel in the Hebrew scriptures, because The book of Daniel talks about the son of man, and it's a title that is used for this promised king to come. And specifically, when we read that Jesus is going to be lifted up, the son of man is going to be lifted up, you would have thought of this passage in Daniel 7, beginning in verse 13. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And so this is the backdrop for what we're reading. There is this son of man who's going to come, he's going to be exalted, he's going to be given a kingdom, and this is a, a specific kind of kingdom and that it's an everlasting kingdom. Now, what John does is he takes this story from Daniel and this title of the son of man, and he crosses it with another story from the Hebrew scriptures, from Numbers 21, uh, about a bronze serpent. And so you have the Israelites They're in the wilderness. They get prideful. God provides manna. He provides water and all these things. But they continue to complain. So God sends snakes, all of these fiery serpents is what it says. And they start biting the people. And how many of you all are are fans of snakes? 
Any snake fans in the room? How many of you all hate snakes? There we go. You're the rational people in the room. And so this whole idea is terrifying. And so they repent and God tells Moses to make a bronze, what? Snake. And to lift it up and that whoever looks to the bronze snake will be healed. Now it does not say that the snakes will be taken away. It doesn't say even that they'll stop biting. (laughs) It just says they won't die. And so this story and this background is used. And and what we're meant to see is that the son of man, this king who's coming and being exalted to his throne, his position of authority, is going to do it in a way that's going to be very unexpected. Just as looking at an object, the serpent, that represented death, was an odd way to receive life. So the way that Jesus is going to be exalted is going to be on a symbol of death. Now, in the Roman world, in this time, there was a symbol that represented all of Rome's power and all of its authority, and it was used to cripple opponents. So anyone who opposed Rome would be executed how? on a cross, right? And this cross was meant to completely erase the memory of this person. It would agonize and shame them, but it was meant to completely erase the memory of this individual. And guess what? It did, right? All of the, I mean, so many people were crucified and yet with Jesus, did that happen? No, The purpose, which is to completely erase a person's memory, to humiliate them, was ultimately only not effective in the life of Jesus. Because in fact, it would be that symbol that we have here on our stage that people identify with the life that Jesus came to give us is the ultimate reversal. So I accidentally said the opposite at the beginning of the service. And so maybe I'll redeem that. It's the ultimate opposite day, right? It's the ultimate reversal that, that dying on a cross would be the way that a king is exalted and also would be a way that the king brings about life. And, and this is where we are meant to see a, a whole lot of elements coming together because the serpent, that symbol comes about very early in our Bible in Genesis. And in the Garden of Eden, what is it that appears on the scene with Adam and Eve? It's a serpent, right? And listening to that serpent is what ultimately brings about the fall, the separation from God, but it, but it brings about the curse. And what is the curse? Ultimately, it's death. The reality of death And there are thorns and thistles that grow out of the ground. The man and woman are shamed and suddenly realize they're naked. There's all of these elements of pain and and all of these things that enter into the scene. But all of that is representing the curse. And it is representing the rule of the serpent. And this is what you see throughout the scriptures is that, that there is this satanic rule that is represented by this curse. And that he has the power of death. 
And so those who go into the grave, just like a snake along its belly is eating dust, right? So this serpent king is consuming all that goes back into the dust. And yet this is exactly what Jesus is going to be addressing, not the enemy of flesh and blood. Who was the enemy of flesh and blood for Jerusalem? Rome, right? Caesar. That is not the enemy Jesus is going to be addressing. He's going to be addressing the enemy that's not of flesh and blood, as Paul says. He's going to be addressing this ultimate enemy and freeing those who are captives underneath his power. And this is what we find in John 18, uh, I'm sorry, in Hebrews 2.14, Hebrews 2.14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. Who is that? The devil. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So it's saying Jesus took on flesh and blood, died on a cross in order to destroy who? Right? The serpent, <laughs> the devil. And to free those, all of those who were under his under slavery by the fear of death because they feared death. Why? Well, because death was this, this ultimate ending of everything. It was this, uh, this ultimate futility and ultimately a, a separation from God. We read about this in Colossians 1, 13 as well, that Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness or the kingdom of darkness. That makes sense? The kingdom of the serpent, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death, and has transferred us into the kingdom of who? The son he loves. So this is the idea, is that Jesus has come to conquer this serpent and the power of death that's under his power to free those who are held captive under this and to bring them into his kingdom, right? A kingdom of life. Secondly, we're going to see a kingdom of love. The verse that is always famous, but Tim Tebow made even more famous with his eye black, uh, John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son. So God and the word for love is agape. And it is this self-giving love is the idea, not based on the deserving or the, the positive attributes of the person loved, but simply as an expression of who he is. He gives this love freely and he gives this love in a specific way, the ultimate way through giving his son. For God did not, verse 17, send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So what is the purpose that God has in sending his son, in having him lifted up on this emblem of death and ultimately having him rise from the dead to conquer the great enemy and to free those under his power. It is to save who? Just the Jews or just Israel? Who? The world, right? And this is a massive difference from some of these conversations as we're going through John 3. And we're going to see this unfold because Jesus, right after this, in John chapter 4, is going to go and he's going to meet with a Samaritan woman at the well. 
And that is the opposite of the people that the Pharisees saw as being worthy of God's love. They would have seen them as being worthy of, you know, this separation. And, and there's even this parable of a, a Pharisee and a tax collector that Jesus tells. And basically the Pharisee is saying, I'm worthy of God's love. I'm so thankful that I'm not like, you know, this sinner. And yet what Jesus says is the, the person who recognizes that they are in desperate need of his love and his forgiveness. That is the person ultimately who receives this justification. So, so here's what we're meant to see in this, that, that God's love for the world, that God's love for those who have been kind of presented as, as being unworthy of that or as, as being rejected of God in some way, that that love is going to be demonstrated through Jesus and ultimately, as we go back to Daniel 7, this is going to be what fulfills the kingdom of every people and nation. That Jesus' kingdom is not going to be based on ethnicity or race or some kind of status in this, this culture. But it is going to be based on his love for all people. That no one is excluded from that. And very specifically, John 17, 22, Jesus in his, he prays towards the end of his life to the father for those which represent all of these different people, right? All of these different groups. And he prays specifically for this diverse group of people who are brought together. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. Okay, so this group of people who are not usually unified, who are usually separated, usually don't love one another and get along, that they would be one. And what would that do? That unity that the world may know. Who? The world, the cosmos. Just just what he says in John 3. That you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus says that you will know that they are my disciples. How? By their love. This kingdom moves forward into the world as this representation of love that only comes from Jesus is demonstrated towards people who normally don't get along. Now, is that what everybody knows followers of Jesus for? Unity and love, right? It's not. And this prayer still needs to be lifted up. But this is ultimately the purpose of the kingdom and what is meant to bring the kingdom continually to the ends of the earth. Well, third and finally, we find a kingdom of light. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. So we have seen through John this major theme of the fact that Jesus is the light of what? The world, right? He has come and he brings light from God and this full revelation from God. And what this also does is not only reveal, but it exposes, it exposes. And how many of you all with young kids or maybe when you had young kids ever looked under their bed? So we had this a couple weeks ago. John Martin, I went to look for something under his bed and there were things growing under there. 
And we literally pulled all of this stuff out from under his bed and filled the entire bedroom floor with the contents of things he had shoved underneath his bed. And, you know, so anyway, that exposure of the light is what reveals what's, what's hidden, right? The bed was hiding that. That was under there all the time, but it was being hidden. And this is what the light does, is it exposes. And what Jesus says is there's a way in which you can cover up sin. You can, you can wash, he says, the outside of the dish or the outside, right? The, 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 the outer appearance can be present. On Easter, we can dress up, right? And look really nice or whatever. And yet it's the inside that where these, these hidden sins lie. And that is what Jesus comes to expose. And, and so because of that, how do people respond to the light? We don't want that, right? That's the idea. Now, there's a specific context, again, in John 3 that Jesus is talking to. And when we're thinking about the Pharisees and we're thinking about Nicodemus and kind of what this represents, they see themselves, once again, they have the robes. They have this impressive appearance. They are the people who God loves and they're high up the chain. And they look down at these, at these sinners. Does that make sense? And there's a, one of the most famous stories of all scripture is the woman caught in the act of adultery. And the woman caught in the act of adultery is brought by this group of Pharisees to Jesus. And they basically want Jesus to say she needs to be stoned and all of this. And what does Jesus say to them? He who is what? Without sin, cast the first stone. Who is left? No one, right? And this is what the scripture says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The issue is not that there's certain people who are the sinners and there's these other people who are not. It's that everyone is. The issue is the honesty, right? The willingness to acknowledge that we have all of this sin, that we have uh, all of this that, that is worthy of the judgment of God, and, and it's the acknowledgement of this because at the end of the day, it's not just the exposure, but the purpose is to bring about forgiveness and freedom to actually get the stuff out from under the bed, right? Or the moldy apple growing thing, you know, and clean the carpet. Like that's, that's the healing, the ultimate healing that we need. And so this is something that requires humility. It requires, and again, talking last week about the robes that Nicodemus would have been wearing and these robes that represented his status. And in order for him to take this step that Jesus calls for of baptism, he had to do what with the robes? Take them off, right? There's this expression of humility that has to be demonstrated. And this is where Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom of God, right? In order to enter this eternal kingdom of God, you have to be like a little what? Child. You have to be able to humble yourself and just acknowledge your need. You see, the thing that separates people in, in this narrative, these specific individuals, from entering the kingdom of God and receiving this forgiveness and eternal life is their own ego, <laughs> right? It's their own pride. And, and that is the barrier. That is the thing that, that keeps them from receiving what God 
wants for them, what Jesus has come to provide for them. And this is ultimately what John 3, 21, but anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so his works may be shown. So the, the people who, who acknowledge their need, and we think about who do come to Jesus, and in John's gospel, the people who come to Jesus are the people who see their need. They come to follow Jesus. They know they need him, and they follow him as the light. They follow his teachings, right? They, they live a life under his authority, and it's so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by who? Now, what does that mean? Their works would be shown to be accomplished by God. Well, aren't they their works, right? If they're following the truth and they're living in this way that Jesus calls them to live? No. And this is the good news, right? That Jesus doesn't just come to take away sins, He also comes not only to give life, but to come and to be that life, to live within his people. And we're going to see this in John 20. And all that has been happening in John 3, it's going to basically be replicated in John 8. And then it's ultimately going to be fulfilled in John 20. We read this. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. This is the section, by the way, where Thomas finally believes and he says, my Lord and my God, right? The first time that anyone in John's gospel acknowledges, believes Jesus is Lord and God, right? Not just teacher or rabbi. He showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them. And we've seen the spirit breathing and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that about, right? Clearly, Jesus did not understand sanitary, uh, you know, rules, right? What are you doing? Breathing on these people. Well, the way that this ultimately would be fulfilled, right? What Jesus was doing, he was in that breathing on them. He was, he was giving them the Holy what? Spirit. And, and now that was represented there in John 20 as what he came to give is the spirit, but it would be fulfilled in Acts 2. That's when all of this, all that we see in all of these accounts is, is culminating together. And those who have acknowledged their need for Jesus, they've, they've acknowledged that they need him. They're going to follow him. He's going to be their king and Lord. They're gathered together on Pentecost and what comes on them? The Holy Spirit. And we're not going to preach through all of that. But out of that, after this happens, Acts 2.32, we read, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. So Jesus was lifted up not only on the cross. That was the beginning of his exaltation, was on the cross, the symbol of death. But ultimately, his exaltation would continue to where? to heaven, right? He's exalted at the right hand of God and and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He has poured out what you both see and hear. And so the disciples now, some of those very people who rejected Jesus, right? Who would not acknowledge their need for him. Some of the Pharisees, some of these individuals who they just couldn't 
acknowledged that he, that, that he wasn't just a teacher, but he really was, you know, Lord and God, that he really was the king of kings. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is where the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus weirdly breathing on his disciples comes together. That, that there is not only this group of people in that upper room who receive this, but anyone who through their words, as they go out with the authority of Jesus, so everything that's true of Jesus, when his spirit comes in them, becomes true of his body. And who is his body? The church. The church is the body of Christ. And they go out and he fills them and he sends them. And they call people to do what? To repent, to acknowledge, humble themselves, acknowledge that you can't save yourself. You need Jesus. And the expression of that, of that humility and surrender to Jesus is what act, what we saw at the beginning of our service. Baptism of I have nothing. I am completely dependent on Jesus. I'm immersing myself in Jesus, completely surrendering all of me to him. So that his death would become my death and his resurrection would become my resurrection. And now his spirit would fill and lead me, live through me. And those become this body of Christ. And, and Jesus continues to live his life. The resurrection, right, happened for Jesus. But guess what? The resurrection life moves forward through who? Through us, right? Through the people who believe who acknowledge that they are snake bit in the wilderness, that they're going to die, that there's no way to get rid of the poison. And they look to the cross, the bronze serpent fulfilled, and trust in Jesus, not only just to get rid of the poison, but because they know they need, we need him to be the light, right? We continue to need to follow him. And so his words become light that guide us. And his life is what empowers us to live. And this is where the fullness of, of the resurrection wells up within us. And so here's what this means. It means because I know our people, and I know there are people who have been through so many difficult things. We've had people lost loved ones at young age. We have people going through all kinds of, of illness and, and diseases. And there's people, all kinds of, of difficulty, right? And many of you, I can... It's like, yeah, we're in, we're in the midst of that. And, and in the wilderness, again, when they looked to the bronze serpent, did the snakes go away? No, they didn't. Did they even stop biting? <laughs> no, they didn't, right? And that's the reality. The curse, there's still elements in this time. This time between when the kingdom was inaugurated through the resurrection of Jesus and when he returns. When there are snake bites, right? There are, there are pain, there are uh, all of these difficulties, all of these struggles. And yet, ultimately, what Jesus read, what is it that they were freed from when they looked to the serpent? Death, right? The power of death, that death wouldn't be the ultimate end. And that's what we are promised as well. That death is not the end, that all that we are experiencing now, all of these little snake bites, all of these difficulties, all of these struggles, they won't have the final word, right? That the kingdom of death itself 
will not have the final word because what happened to Jesus when he walked out of that tomb, he moved not from life into death or from light into darkness, but from darkness into light and from night into day, that there is this complete reversal. And this is what awaits us, that death has been defeated, that ultimately, as Buechner says, that the sad thing will not be the last thing. And so I want us to do something as we respond. I want us to consider whether we have truly looked to Jesus, if we have believed in him, trusted in him, because we need him. We don't just need his blood, right? This is what Dallas Willard calls vampire Christianity. Just need his blood. Although we do, we need his blood for forgiveness and purification of sins, but we need him to lead us. We need to surrender to him as king, to follow him. And so that may be the step, and maybe the step for some of you is to take that step of baptism, right? The sign of entering into the kingdom of God. Maybe it is to to just surrender to Jesus, to, to fully surrender to him, or maybe to surrender an area of your life, right? That hasn't been Surrendered, whatever that is. And so after this, I'll be at the prayer room. Uh, there'll be others at the prayer room and we'd love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that you need to be praying for. But ultimately, I want us to proclaim a, a liturgy. And so this will take just a minute. But I think it's important that we acknowledge the truth that death and all that it represents for those who are in Christ will not be a catastrophe, but a you catastrophe. It will not be moving into something worse, something ultimate, but it will be moving into something better. Right? This eternal life with God. I'm going to ask if you would stand with me and I think if our screens are working, I'm going to ask you, so when you see something on the screen that's underlined, I'm going to ask if you would recite this out loud and then I will recite the parts that are not. So let's say this together. Through death, O Lord, you gave us life. You have made all things well, eternal King. You have made all things well, O Christ. For it was your intention from creation's dawn, not only to make all things, but to make all things right. When your works were despoiled and wrecked by sin and death, you undertook to save and to reclaim what you had first made good. You entered into this, our space and time, to act on our behalf. Through death, O Lord, you gave us life. You have made all things well, eternal King. You have made all things well, O Christ. Death's dark shroud has been rent ragged and pierced through by the first dawning of your resurrection light. This age of passing sorrows is but the long death rattle of death itself. The outcome bears no hint of doubt. The work is done. The victory is won. So death will be undone. All works of death will be undone. And we whose lives are hid with Christ in God will rise to live eternal everyone. Through death, O Lord, you gave us life. You have made all things well, eternal King. You have made all things well, O Christ. 
Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.